0: Legendary award-winning director Oliver Stone is back with Nuclear Now, his first film in seven years, coming exclusively to theaters across the USA and Canada beginning on April 28th, that's the end of this month, based on the book A Bright Future, written by award-winning scholar of international relations, Professor Joshua S. Goldstein, who also co-wrote the film. Nuclear Now explores the possibility for the global community to overcome the challenges of climate change and energy poverty to reach a brighter future through the power of nuclear energy, an option that may become the only viable way to ensure our continued survival sooner than we think. With unprecedented access to the nuclear industry in France, Russia, and the United States, director Oliver Stone delivers a revolutionary documentary that Variety has called an intensely compelling must-see film. It opens in New York and Los Angeles on April 28th, with special one-day screening events across North America on Nuclear Now Day, May 1st, that you won't want to miss. I'm going to be seeing that in Chicago on that day, FYI. So if you want to know more, visit nuclearnowfilm.com, check it out. And now on with the show. gotta ask what's your story man how did you become the guy who writes this fantastic take on the AMLO presidency
1: all right uh, I'm not very good at this but let's give it a go Um, so uh, I grew up in South Florida in a city called uh, Coral Springs about 40 minutes north of Miami mm-hmm. my parents moved to the U.S. from Columbia when I was like four or five years old in the late 90s and, you know, living here in Miami is kind of referred to as the capital of Latin America. I always had an interest to Latin mm. America and traveled there, et cetera. Uh, I got my bachelor's in political science at the University of Florida. Um, and when I graduated in 2018, I moved to Colombia, worked with a professor from UF on a research project on community policing in the city of Medellin, mm. uh, Colombia. Did that for like a year and a half. And I uh, went back to UF in 2020 to get my master's in Latin American studies, uh, did more research uh, for my thesis in Columbia. And I graduated last year, May of last year, moved back to Miami, where I'm now currently uh, an intelligence fellow for uh, Florida International University's Gordon Institute for Public Policy. So we work on something different intelligence products um, And um, re- recently during that time, too, I took up freelance writing. Mm. Um, I've written for a number of different outlets on the right and left, and uh, including American Affairs. Shout out to mm-hmm. Julius Crine, you had on, he put us in touch.
0: Yeah, thanks, uh, Julius.
1: <laughs> and shout out to Helen Andrews of uh, the American Conservative, who put me in touch with uh, Julia. So it's so the way these oh, things H-
0: Helen has added me, edited me over there and is, is great to work with. So also, thank you, Helen. <laughs>
1: Ellen is very based.
0: Yes, it is true.
1: But um yeah, in my writing, I uh I like to think that I uh just kind of try to point out to both sides things that they might not necessarily know mm. about Latin America and its politics. I mean, here in Miami, uh living here and growing up here on the right, you kind of get the vision from the kind of cringe cuban anti-communists see the world through <laughs> exclusively through the lens of what's good and bad for the cuban regime you know the markets can do no wrong and whatever
0: right right, and right right,
1: then in academia i was exposed to a lot of progressive thought that just kind of blamed everything bad in latin america on the u.s u.s imperialism and whatnot
0: sure sure
1: and i, I mean if, you know people can't walk walk and chew gum at the same time both of these things are bad communism is bad mm-hmm. and U.S. imperialism Mm. in Latin America was really bad, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, um, I didn't know, I didn't know you were uh, Colombian. One of my closest friends is from Bogota. Um, Same, yeah, I
1: was born in Bogota.
0: Okay, yeah, great. Um, And... I think trying to point out, sort of, to each side its own blind spots is what this essay does really well. So, people, you can check it out down in the show notes. American Affairs will give you one free trial reading. Uh, though, again, I do suggest you subscribe because it is sick and it is handsome to get those quarterly editions in your mailbox. Yeah, uh, yeah the papers but are really
1: nice. I know, they're really nice. It's
0: like getting a book. Um, but what I like about it is that you do a good job of showing how AMLO doesn't fit into the American context of left or right. So I think before we talk about like AMLO and Pemex... But one and one like, thing
1: on that concerning yeah. energy politics as concerns us. I mean, from a U.S. conservative perspective, AMLO really is more akin to the way like Republicans here view energy versus progressive. Yes. So that's...
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we're and I really want to dig into that because I think a lot of uh, listeners will find that very surprising. But before we do that, I sort of want to, can you put him in a little bit of context for me and the listeners, those of us who are, are again, I'm a provincial American, as I said, <laughs> in, in our email correspondence. So could you help me understand uh, who this guy is, what he means for Mexico, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Of course. So um, he's known as AMLO after his initials, full name is Andres Manuel López Obrador, you know, in Spanish people tend to have four names, two first names, two last names, one is the, the fathers and the other the mothers, etc. He was elected in, in 2018 in a landslide, got like 55% of the vote, his nearest mm. competitor got like 20 something. Uh, and he's one of the world's most popular leaders. I mean, uh, he's had approval ratings upwards of sixty percent his entire presidency. I think a, a recent global poll had him second only to Modi uh, mm. as one of the world's wow. most popular leaders. Yeah, uh, he's left wing, and he thinks of himself as like left wing. But as we were saying, left wing in Mexico is a little bit different, and AMLO himself mm-hmm. is is very Id- idiosyncratic and heterodox in a lot of ways. So he's very conservative on social issues, for example, anti-abortion, et cetera, pro-family and traditionalists. He's also a maniacal fiscal hawk. He's obsessed with budgets, balanced budgets, uh, obsessed with cutting down on spending, and, and especially what he considers to be excessive, overly luxurious spending. Mm. Um
0: yeah, you, you had the it was something, a certain type of like, uh, it was like humble Republicanism or something like that. What was <laughs> yeah, that yeah. He, uh, yeah.
1: It's, he calls it Republican austerity.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. what I like. There, to me, that was like, I was like, there's something that feels very uh, almost like classical. About that ideal, it like struck me as like almost Roman, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. And, and so he, he
1: lives it too. Yeah, he doesn't live yeah. in the presidential palace. He sold the presidential jet. Uh, he flies coach, and um, yeah, really just tries to be, you know, close to the people. And so part of that is that, um, he's really big on labor, workers mm. and workers' rights, social programs for the poor, etc. That's why he's very popular. Um. And and like I was saying earlier, most important to us, he's an ardent economic nationalist. Mm -hmm. uh, His government, the the core of his priorities are Mexico's national industry, specifically the oil, uh, mining, and energy sector. And and so uh, actually just two weeks ago, March 18th, was the 85th anniversary of uh, oil nationalization in Mexico in 1938. And that's a national holiday in Mm -hmm. uh, Mexico. And uh, I wrote this down. Uh, just like imagine any Democrat saying this, for uh, for example, Amos said this in front of the uh, Mexico City's main plaza, the Socalo in front of hordes, thousands of supporters of full plaza. He said, long live oil exploration, uh, wow. long live the workers and technicians of past and present of the national oil industry and long live General Lázaro Cárdenas, who was the president who nationalized them.
0: Man, that is mind blowing to imagine. So let me let me ask you this question you can, I, this is one of those things where i'm going to say some stuff and then you can tell me what i'm wrong about right so i'm going to tell you what my impression is my impression is that in the 90s with uh, that's really when pre takes off in mexico um, and pre slots in pretty well with the general shift towards what we call neoliberalism now it was friendly with clinton uh, I believe that party was, and th- the leaders that it produced were very congenial to NAFTA um, and and how that worked out and with privatization schemes within it. Um, and I'm sure there've been some discrepancies between them, but it really seems like Amlo is this character who comes and sort of upends what was a certain orthodoxy for a long time in Mexico. Is that correct? How wrong or right am I
1: on all that? You're about 90% of the way there. Uh, wow okay 10%. that was
0: better than i thought
1: <laughs> the 10 percent is significant though the 3 okay. that's called the institutional revolutionary party mm-hmm. is kind of a uh, oxymoron but they <laughs> were in power for almost all of the 20th century something like 80 mm-hmm. years it was a single okay. party dictatorship and um a- actually uh lazaro cardenas you can sort of consider him to be a one of the founders of the PRI, it was called something else at the time, mm. um, but he really laid the basis for like the regime that developed and actually he kind of became disappointed into what the party ended up turning into. Uh, but yeah, in the 90s, uh, for sure, uh, the free governments were really close to, you, you know, the the Clinton administration mm-hmm. and the Bush mm-hmm. administration for both Bushes and NAFTA, you know, they helped push through NAFTA and all this, etc
0: okay cool so it was more like there was this uh internal shift within pre uh yeah yeah. in the 90s right so it was sort of okay so it was an inner uh, like revolution within pre or whatever that that kicks us off okay that's that's really really helpful so let's talk about let's talk about energy like I told you before we recorded Amlo has said some things that I i I like I like a lot. and his his energy guy, whose name I can't remember, I also really like. they did like, I think, a joint press conference or something like that where they were both like uh, all these international renewables developers who are trying to build stuff to compete in our electricity market are basically an extension of Western NGOs that are trying to <laughs> fragilize Mexico. And most of that energy sucks. and shouldn't be built that way. <laughs> and I was like, go off Kings, like tell it how it is. I was like, it was a level of like technical, uh, sophistication and ideological clarity and like respect for, the mexican people's ability to understand the energy system that i feel like we rarely get in america so tell me about what energy is for amlo and what he's doing about it there
1: so i i mean it's really a, what you just, what you just said there it's it's great because if you were to read you know the financial times Bloomberg, America's Quarterly, mm-hmm. they'll say that that's proof that, you know, that the Mexican government just doesn't understand the global economy or the
0: energy. <laughs> right, right, whatnot. right. Yeah.
1: And uh, we'll, we'll talk about this in a, in a sec, but um, the thing is, all renewables in Mexico right now are basically run by foreign companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, because Amlo is a, a nationalist, he's really interested in shoring up uh, Mexico's domestic firms and Mm -hmm. so sees them as competitors on the other hand yeah and you know the government has pushed for some um solar power and wind power and other renewables but sure uh, yeah i mean everybody's doing it these days yeah yeah there's definitely some animosity with the uh private sector which which really is like multinationalism but anyway as far as energy concerns mexicans uh, and going back to Lázaro Cárdenas, he Cárdenas was seen um, at the time. He was a contemporary of Roosevelt. He governed at the mm-hmm. same time as FDR. He nationalized the oil industry, and this really, really pissed off um, oil companies here, Shell and um, Standard Oil. Boycotted uh, chemicals and uh, products necessary for oil production from Mexico until like after the Second World War, when that was settled. Mm. Um, but like I said, the nationalization of uh, oil—it's a national holiday. This is something key to the Mexican psyche. Something mm-hmm. Amex and CFE, the state electrical company, are seen as national assets and points of pride, even if they decayed. In mi, a mi patria, decades.
0: like that's the—that yeah. Yeah, yeah, is the way that. to think about it. It is part of this is part of the Republican tradition we didn't inherit so much uh-huh. in, Amer- in America. In um, America, is that like that is an extension of like of the fatherland it is it is the, your responsibility and the and the the country and the citizens property right?
1: uh-huh and for amlo uh, this is really key because he grew up during the 1970s during the oil boom for mexico mexico mm-hmm. saw like 10% gdp growth as a result of oil wow in the 60s and 70s um is from the southern state of tabasco like the sauce uh this is a coastal state in mexico's south Uh, where the oil industry is very heavy. Most of uh, Mexico's reserves are located in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, And AMLO is building this massive mega uh, oil refinery, the Dos Bocas refinery, in his home state. It's kind of a vanity project. Uh, (laughs) but um, And notably also, AMLO was a follower of Cardenas' son, Cuauhtémoc Cardenas. He was, which by like the 80s was a huge, he was a huge critic of the pre-establishment. He was a left wing Mm. populist. Uh, And he ran for president in 1988. And uh, actually, that election is widely considered to have been stolen
0: okay, that's right. okay. I'm remembering a couple of years ago that I I had watched a documentary on the 88 elections. oh yeah, and that's where oh, any yeah. of my knowledge about free and its internal revolution came from. I was just like, why well, where did I get that stuff about free And now I'm remembering and that was largely uh many thought of stolen elections. So he's bringing that with him after as you detail in the piece, uh Pemex and the electricity system, have been privatized uh, in particular ways. So tell me about that.
1: Uh, so, uh, first, I'll get into a little bit of background on on PEMEX. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know the the tragedy of PEMEX really, mm-hmm. and uh, it's this is a long story of neglect. I won't be able to really cover all of it. I'll, I'll do my best today. PEMEX is the world's most indebted oil company. They're a hundred billion dollars in debt. It's completely astronomical um and you know after during the 80s uh, the oil boom went away and that really kind of uh cut things back and you know we had neoliberalization a uh, uh, kind of this group think among policymakers that the market can never do any wrong
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um you know prior to that during the 50s 60s and 70s uh mexico and a lot of latin american countries abided by what was called isi import substitution industrialization and PEMEX had a dedicated industrial policy with a long-term vision for production they'd set production targets they'd raise tariffs to protect protect key sectors key to production uh and they reduced taxes on uh Pemex depending on the number of jobs created pretty smart right yeah. um but then in the 90s you know you had all these market-centric reforms they outsourced a lot of uh, PEMEX's subsidiaries specifically that supplied uh the petrochemical sector this is around when NAFTA became enacted. There was this focus on manufacturing was another topic for a whole other podcast. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of uh, opinions about, uh, and the view, but the view specifically for industrial policy on PEMEX, uh, changed that, um, you know, the market. let the market do its work. If we just Mm -hmm. leave PEMEX alone, it'll just do great and fix itself. And, uh, that, uh, actually it didn't help. Over time, there the their, uh, the focus came more on um, less on, um, uh was more on exporting oil for mm. the global market and less on um, refinery. Uh, and you can see this in that in 2019, for example, half of um, the installed capacity for petrochemical complex were not in use. So it makes sense how much- Half? Yeah.
0: That is a crazy statistic.
1: Yeah. So as a result, there's... it hasn't been popular, uh, hasn't been profitable for many years, and it kind of came to be seen as this cash cow that's just taxed mm. for government revenue. Um, the peak in oil production was in two thousand four, but by twenty twelve, it went down a million barrels, around two point five million.
0: Duh, man. So so let me let me sort of uh, get this straight. Like as these subsidiaries get sold off as export to other countries who will handle their own refining or stuff like that, sort of like the the business template for Pemex shifts radically and also means that um, I'm guessing, uh, will you tell me, what impact does it have on Pemex and Mexico to not be using half their installed capacity (laughs) of refining?
1: (laughs) Well, here, here, I'll I'll, I'll go on with this. The the issue is that, you know all of this happens, and and by the early 2010s, the situation wasn't as bad as today. But you know the the indicators weren't particularly good, and so you know what policy policymakers thought was that you know what problem was we didn't go far enough. We need to double down on
0: mm-hmm.
1: on uh, neoliberalization. So they uh, the pre the government prior to Amlo uh, EPN uh, Enrique Peña Nieto. Mm -hmm. He passed an amendment that reformed the energy sector in 2013, and it had to be an amendment because it's written into the Constitution that um, natural resources and specifically oil are Mm -hmm. national assets of the state. Um, So in this amendment, it's really funny. It stipulates now that, you know, natural resources belong to Mexico so long as they're in the ground. Once they're extracted, then you can do with them what you please. Mm
0: -hmm. So then
1: finally, after 75 years, they privatized the energy sector multinationals could finally jump back in, uh, to Mexico's, um, uh, oil, uh, sector. And, uh, you, you know, I mean, it's funny because like the Boston consulting group said that this would increase production by 75%. The opposite happened. It went down further by like another 40%. Uh, it was a complete disaster. The, the electricity sector for CFE, um, I mean, prices went up within just three years by 35%. You've written a lot on how this just doesn't make sense. It's a natural monopoly. Why on earth would you try to arbitrarily put in competition that makes everything uh, work Mm at cross purposes? Uh, It's, you know, it really is tragic.
0: Right. So they've run into a similar problem there. and I I assume that they have some of our shared problems of... um you know, it gets harder to make the case for big power plants and maintaining and building them. And and then that creates uh, problems for actually making money, (laughs) operating those things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because then the the
1: logic then is that, oh, you know, this is a dying sector. We need to move into other things. Just let it further decay. And it's- it's Despite the fact that it's necessary
0: for industrial modernity, Mm -hmm. of course. Right, Um, so what, steps is omlo taking to take on these challenges you sort of like go through a little bit in the article so like what what, what's he been up to
1: Uh, i'll go through the more uh, interesting part first because there's the aspect of exactly how he's like intervened in pemex and then Mm -hmm. like the the kind of national energy policy that you know a lot of people hate or financial outlets despise Mm -hmm. but um Basically, what Amlo decided he would do when he came in was that he was going to, you know, put his finger on the scale, uh, and have the state favor uh national firms over private ones. And really, what that means is foreign foreign ones. So, the government started handing out contracts to PEMEX and CFE at the expense of privates. Um, they actually uh banned outsourcing. Previous governments had allowed um, private companies. Uh, to outsource even core functions. And so a lot of these private companies were using this to avoid, for example, paying bonuses to workers. That was something really good that AMLO did. Mm. Uh, and he started weaponizing the bureaucracy against uh, the, these private companies. It's funny because a lot of the, an excuse he uses frequently, especially against mining companies, is um, environmental concerns. Uh, so he'll <laughs> block permits for mining companies allegedly due to environmental risk, which is funny because is really not that much of an environmentalist. There's two uh, really important cases that actually came up in the news uh, recently. In uh, 2017, a consortium headed by Talos uh, Energy, I think it's a, a Houston-based uh, company, mm-hmm. uh, discovered a huge oil field, the Zama oil field. Uh, and you know, this was before AMLO, the previous government I had no issue. AMLO came and he said, no, 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 no. This oil field that overlaps with territories assigned to Pemex, Pemex is going to run this. Mm-hmm. And this infuriated Talos. This has been in court for years. And uh, last year, uh, a court ruled that Pemex would be the sole operator. And then last month, finally, another court said that they would have joint operatorship. Um, another case in March, which was crazy. This was something like two, three weeks ago Vulcan Materials, the produce, uh, Alabama producer of crushed stone, sand, etc., uh active in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, Amlo sent in soldiers to seize one of their ports in the Yucatan. And uh, the, Amlo has another vanity project. He's trying to build this Maya train, a, a tourism train in the Yucatan Peninsula mm. to go to gotcha. Cancun and a lot of archaeological sites. Um, and, you know, this is all jungle and you needed to bring in concrete. And the Vulcan has the only port where they could then get concrete through to the construction site. And they didn't want to cooperate. Um, so the AMLO seized it temporarily they gave it back but uh, and he says that you know, they had an agreement that they could use the poor but the company says no and anyway <laughs> this caused a, I, I forget who uh, was a representative from Alabama that you know came on like I'm sure they Saturday. were pissed yeah yeah they were, yeah they were, they were pissed and it, it's amazing that this is not more of a headline that comes out of national news I don't know how AMLO gets away with some of these things
0: I, I feel like, like, sir, there are two things going on. Like, uh, I think most Americans only think of Mexico as an immigration issue. Hmm. Um, and uh, no no one in the press cares what happens to Alabama, <laughs> right? So that's like another one, right? They're, they're just not from places like that generally. So they don't cover issues that come up and stuff, places like that. Uh, and then I would say the third one is, is that, you know, uh, the Ukraine war, is the international news that has captured everybody's attention. So sure. it seems to be like the perfect, the perfect time to get away with the uh perfect crime of stealing Vulcan's port to prove a point so that he can build <laughs> his vanity project. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean I'm very, very curious about um about how how this is going for Pemex. Like right. you, you cover it in the piece a little bit and you say that. Uh, He's done almost everything he can to sort of help them out. What does that look like? And what does he ultimately hope Pemex will do?
1: So when he came in, yeah, the idea was to try to uh, rescue uh, Pemex, right the ship a bit. There was this huge crackdown on uh, oil theft, uh, on, on fuel theft. Um, which is a big criminal economy in Mexico. So they large largely successful. They cut down on it by something like 90%, although today they're, they're, there's a growing issue of LNG theft. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a rescue package for Pemex, a lot of tax breaks, which was very necessary, because it's a very tax burden uh, company. And the government started prioritizing refining. I mean, yeah, there's this huge mega project, the, the Dos Bocas, uh, mm-hmm. there's about a fifty percent reduction in exports and also imports, and uh, seemingly the effect of that is that um domestic prices of gas have gone down in Mexico. Mm. But um, it's a it's a mixed bag. I mean, uh, it's funny you'll read the headlines like PEMEX spectacular losses in the fourth quarter of 2022. And mm-hmm. will be like, wait a minute, but they did make a profit throughout the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, the The goal for the administration is to try to bring a production back up to 2 million barrels, mm-hmm. which might be difficult. But um, AMLO, it, you, you have to give them credit in that uh, Pemex hasn't, uh, you know, it's not profitable, but they haven't incurred in more debt. And they managed mm. to keep production from further declining. And, you know, as we know, AMLO is a maniac for balanced budgets. There was a, a lot of stories wondering um, a few weeks ago, I I think, for some announcement that Bamex was going to make, whether the government was just going to like bail them out. And that didn't happen, and, you know, as opposed to, you know, our president here. Amlo is not the kind of guy. Yeah, it sounds like it does even to Pemex. So,
0: right. Which, I mean, you you have to respect it like that. He he's disciplined on that end. And I, I really do respect that. Um, And it seems like, I mean, to me, it seems like sort of the broader national vision uh, that he's offering his, what is it? Like the fourth transformation. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Right. Um, Is to do things that I think might seem a little different to American ears, right? Like you point out that the manufacturing sector in Mexico really isn't all that, Um, that while NAFTA did bring some of that in, it was more like assemblies rather than like actual construction. And that what NAFTA ended up doing, especially when China entered, is it just crushed Mexican, um, manufacturing, Mexican yeah. algor- manufacturing. And then also, the like, it ended up crushing Mexican farmers. So I think most when most people see so- somebody who's like, we want more oil, we want all of this, that they're gunning for big industrial, maybe even like metropolitan upscaling. But... Amlo thinks that the key to Mexican prosperity from your article, uh, it seems to be that like really helping farmers is a big part of this too.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's a Southerner himself. Uh, The South of Mexico is a lot more agricultural, a lot poorer. Uh, Amlo, you know, notably as a leftist, he has a lot of support among the old. Uh, Mm. And yeah, his biggest support comes from peasants. Uh, You go to the cities, it's kind of like reverse from here, except that he, you know, he's the... A leftist, but in the cities is where you'll find the most opposition towards him, especially mm-hmm. among a specific class. And it's more the poor and especially the working class that really support him.
0: Well, that makes sense, right? And I think like one of the funniest details in your piece. I mean, first of all, Mexican environmentalists hate him. Like it's just it's like it's incredible. <laughs> oh, it, oh my um, god! Yeah, it's it it is wild, you know. And like all of the. This is gonna sound really bad, but it's my show, so I get to say what I want. Um, all of the upper class Mexican Americans who find their way to uh, Yankee uh, <laughs> ng green NGOs have a lot oh, to say yeah. about Amlo and what he is oh, yeah. doing for the environment, regardless of what it's how it's benefiting the Mexican people. Um, but the funniest detail in this was like. And I'm not endorsing anything he says. I want to bring this up to help people understand how left and right are different. There is that he calls sort of the bourgeois class and upper class feminists conservatives. Yeah. And like that does not slot in with American culture war at all. Uh Right. I thought that was because he has this old class background to it. He's like, well, they're this upper, they're this elite tier, and that's why they're conservative.
1: Yeah, it's funny because he's personally conservative in a lot of uh key ways. He's very traditional, very family-oriented, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But he perceives kind of like uh American social progressivism, LGBT issues, and all of that as something that's upper class. And to him, mm-hmm. anything that's upper class is conservative, quote unquote. Yeah. And so he talks about this all the time, you know, the conservative oligarchies and that that you you know, he has he's on every morning, he has these three-hour news conferences every single day who will rail against you know the conservatives and the oligarchs and yeah you know, the u.s biden whatever
0: I, i've watched a few of his um, oh, really? his things yeah yeah with subtitles not like the whole thing yeah, yeah, you know, yeah four yeah. hours to like uh-huh. uh do that and it it is uh i mean his soft skills are like unparalleled Oh, yeah. Like it it is it is really a thing to behold. I encourage people to watch it, however you feel about AMLO. It is he's a smooth operator and he is so good at inverting questions. Oh
1: yeah. Um oh, yeah, you know, yeah.
0: and I mean he, this is he a uses compliment. those
1: conferences that just run the table against all of oh, Mexico's yeah. biggest media outlets that despise him. They just yeah. hate him so much. But the the crazy thing is that he really has them defeated. They're powerless. They can throw out all the headlines that they want but he's still as popular as ever and extremely powerful
0: that's amazing so let me ask you this um you know pemex is struggling it's got an ally in Amlo. uh it seems like there might be a little bit of a succession succession problem for Amlo, right there's like almost an old an ancient political philosophical problem (laughs) with uh uh with what's going to happen next um I,
1: I think i heard you recently on uh, one of the podcasts you talked to someone else about this but i don't remember who
0: yeah i talked about the succession problem when it came to general electric and the oh, handoff yeah, 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 from yeah, yeah, jack yeah, welsh yeah. to jeff Immelt with um uh mr. mr cohen whose book power failure is outstanding uh-huh. um as a business history yeah and people go back and listen to that episode and <laughs> see uh william cohen is great great guy very generous very thoughtful good writer um he certainly made me look good by being on here, which I always appreciate, uh, as you are doing as well, Juan. So let me uh, let me ask you, what's the future for these? Do, obviously, predictions are fragile, right? Like, I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna hold you to it, but read some tea leaves for me. You
1: know, it's impossible to know. I don't like predicting the future, but every indication is that Omlo should be able to handpick a successor. Mm -hmm. The favorite is a woman who's currently the mayor of Mexico City, Claudia Scheinbaum. Mm -hmm. She actually recently had an interview in Bloomberg where she said that she was going to continue all of on those policies, uh, especially in the mining sector and in in the energy sector and keep supporting Pemex, etc. She's seen as more of like a technocrat and Mm -hmm. a little bit more cosmopolitan. Maybe Mm -hmm. that might not be how she personally feels. She might mm-hmm. be saying that precisely to get into the president's good graces. Uh, on the other hand, another runner up is the current um, uh, secretary of state, the foreign minister, Marcelo Ebrard. Mm. Uh, he is, this is the problem is he doesn't have a lot of charisma, but he's supposed to be uh, really close to Amlo. So it's possible also that he really could just surprise everyone and end up picking someone that's completely unknown. Right, but the right. polls do indicate that whoever is Morena, uh, the that's the political party of Amlo's candidate. Whoever's the candidate for Morena should be a shoe in next year mm. in twenty four.
0: Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's just it's very very yeah. Man, I'm gonna cut out me stuttering while I think of the thing that I wanted to say. But uh, the 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 next question I want to ask is you, uh, what are what are the lessons? That uh, Americans can take from the PEMEX situation, or just politically around energy, and even maybe even at a rhetorical level, talking about it from OMLO. Like, what do you see there? That because I mean, obviously, PEMEX is, is very different from our highly pri- privatized, yeah. often very wild catty um, oil sector. Uh, what? Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I probably come off during this podcast as being very anti-market. Uh, which mm-hmm. I'm not. I mean, the market has its place. Uh, and, you know, some of these kinds of reforms in other countries have been beneficial for certain sectors, others less so. You you have to think about the quality and, mm-hmm. and specifically which sector exactly what you do. But, um, I mean, uh, politically, as far as uh, energy is concerned, uh, I mean, Emma, yeah, you and uh, Lee Phillips have really changed my mind a lot on, on these topics. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's not a bad thing if energy is plentiful, if energy yeah. is cheap, and you get you reap positive political rewards from this. This shouldn't be rocket science. <laughs> it's here and, and yeah, in other countries like Germany, we're just hell bent on sabotaging our own energy uh, mm-hmm. infrastructure for no good reason, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I guess the like the simplest point is the truest point, which is just don't screw it up. Yeah, right. Like well, works, it,
1: works. Why fix what's bro- what's not broken?
0: Yeah, right. Well, and I guess the other thing is, too, I mean, you know, you by the way, like we've talked, this has been very flattering. Uh, of AMLO, you also have some great criticisms in the piece that are sort of oh, off yeah. topic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for what we're talking about here, so I really advise people to dig into those because they're they're I, I thought it was very thoughtful. So just to just to clarify that, but I I couldn't help but feel like these parts of it were just very inspiring. There was something that seemed very, uh, he seemed confident and free. And he seemed to exemplify a certain level of like straight talk and clear headed thinking around energy that feels so absent here.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's actually, and even more broadly, just as a vision for the future and the country mm-hmm. that, that I hadn't even realized that. Yeah, he, he does espouse like a, a positive tone. Yeah. Positive vision for the country. We're doing right. We're helping the people. Um, and that's something that here increasingly, and 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 especially on the right, there's this doomerism that you know everything's terrible and Biden. Yeah. I mean, on the left, too, it's oh, climate change, everything's gonna ruin us. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. how about we actually do things productive about our problems? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that there's a lack of inspiration. And I think that I think it will fall to us. To fill in the deficit, not just you and me, uh, but those of us who don't want to succumb to fear, resentment, and depression. Yeah. Right? Like we will inherit the mantle of the future if we fight hard enough. And I think that that is something that I felt radiating off of the pages of your piece uh, while I read it uh, with some of the better aspects of AMLO. um it's funny because
1: uh, my uh, my view of the whole piece is still kind of negative well in, in terms of the it just kind of mexico and latin america are screwed but in other ways but, yeah yeah
0: <laughs> well i'm sure you know but it, but i mean i think i think it goes a long way to have that positive positive message and it's something Absolutely. that you know I, I was talking to so the episode <laughs> An episode came out today, you know, uh, a a few hours ago with Paris Ortiz-Wines, who's a great nuclear advocate. And then I uh, interviewed Grant Deaver, and that episode will come out before yours. And we have extensive conversations about hope and how to change people's minds. And, and what that's going to mean. And I think to me, uh, despite the difficulty of the Latin American context, which mostly through friends I've become more familiar with. And so uh, there, it always comes uh, very bitterly <laughs> from them, from those who know and whose families know. Um, I still think that to give up on the hope is to give up the fight. It's to seed the field and total.
1: Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more
0: and we can't afford to do that. So I really want to thank you man for coming on and talking about this. Again, the articles in the show notes, but before I let you go, do you have anything else you want to hype? Do you have a place where people can reach you or find your work?
1: Uh yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh not very active, but um I do a lot of writing. Uh, I just had a piece come out in America's Quarterly. Okay. Uh, um I've written others for uh, the American conservative and and might have another one coming out for uh, uh, American affairs. We'll see. Um, Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah. Look them up everybody. That'll be in the show notes. Uh, You can check that out again. Thank you, Juan. And everybody remember to stay sharp, stay strong and stay radiant. We will see you next time.